Well, welcome back to our um, second week of Wednesday night community here. Hopefully you grabbed if you, uh, if you came in and you saw cookies and coffee. And thank you to our snack team who comes and sets up. So appreciative for them, our communion team. Are you grateful for them? I am very, very grateful. So thank you, thank you for all, all of you who do that. Um, we are in uh, a series, a 13-week series, looking at the Apostles' Creed. If you missed last week, I would encourage you to uh, listen to it because it sets it up. And there's a lot of... Um, Things I wanted to say about it, if people had concerns like, why are we talking about a creed? And like I said last week, and I won't go through all of it again, but we're, I'm, I'm, I'm not preaching a creed. I'm preaching the Bible. But, but, but we're using the creed as sort of an overlay to think about categories, if that makes sense. And so um, if, if you were with us last week, we started by, I just tore this off thinking I'd throw it away, but maybe I'll just put it back up there real quick. Um, we talked about the nature of beliefs. Do you remember that? Um, and we said, when we think about our faith and belief and how it works, we, we have public beliefs. Remember we said, these are the things that I want you to think that I believe, right? I want, I, I want it to be publicly thought of that Brent believes A, B, C, and D, whatever it might be. Um, and then we have private beliefs. These would be things that I think I really do believe, but when push comes to shove, those beliefs aren't quite as certain and sure as I thought they were, and I compromise on them often, you know? But then we have what we, what uh, Dallas Willard talked about is our mental map of the world. And if you remember, the, 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 the mental map of the world is just the way that I really believe reality is about everything. And what we saw was that we never violate any of our beliefs that are at the level of our mental map. But we're also not aware always of what, sometimes I'm pretty sure a belief I have is at a level of mental map, but really, it's kind of at the level of private belief. <clears throat> and so, we, we talked about this idea that beliefs in our mental map, um, remember, we never have to psych ourselves up to belief. And we said there's a danger, as we talk about things we believe, to think that I have to, by my own will, work, a sense of, work myself up to a sense of certainty about even like these things right here, that's, that's like a self-defeating thing, it doesn't work. But what I do is I just, I can't always, I'm not always certain about things, my level of certainty is up and down and it's 90% or 10%, but I can commit myself to the way of Jesus. And as I commit myself to the way of Jesus, as I offer my, my, my body as a living sacrifice, the Holy Spirit begins to, to transform my mind as Romans 12 says, right? The level of my mental map, he actually starts toying with. And the goal is that I wanna have the mental map that Jesus had as he walked to the earth in perfect obedience to the Father, trusting his plan fully. And so that's, that's my goal as a, as a believer. And so tonight we're gonna look at kind of the first affirmation in the creed, which if you have a, if you have a bulletin, What's the very first thing that, that the creed affirms as you open that up there? I believe in God the Father Almighty. And we're gonna, I was going to try to talk about the, I'm, I'm going to save the Almighty piece for next week. <laughs> so tonight we're, we're just looking at this whole concept of uh, this statement. I believe in God the Father. Um, now, it's interesting, when you look at the creed, remember we said the creed is Trinitarian in format? You can see it on the page, right? There's like a first section with, that's indented following, and that first section is about who? 
It's about the Father, right? And then the second section, it's about Jesus. And then the third section is about, is about the Spirit. Now let me say um, just kind of a quick word about when we talk about I believe in this whole creed, these three places stand out a little different than everything else that we're affirming in the creed. Um, I believe in is different than the other ones. I believe in God the Father, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Um, oftentimes when we say I believe in something, we, we kind of mean like it's my conviction, right? Like I have a conviction that. So I believe that. Um, Dr. Charles Finlay, he was a Cuban doctor who um, had, a, had a theory back, this is in the late 19, or in the late 1880s, that yellow fever was transmitted by mosquitoes. And so in 1881, he put forward this theory, but, but before he could do it, he had to kind of have some evidence to convince others. And so he, he took like a number of patients who had yellow fever, and he locked himself in a room with them. <laughs> This is how much he you know, believed this to be true. And just put up mosquito nets so that no mosquitoes would, would be in there and stayed in there for, for quite a while. And then when, when he came out of this very risky test, this theory or belief of his came to be something that he could show as evidence to other people. And, and it came, he, he, this belief of his was now a conviction. Okay? That's one way to talk about belief. I believe in these things. These are my convictions. But with these three here, the I believe in God the Father, I believe in uh, the Son, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, there's another level. It goes beyond a conviction that something is true, and it's something more along the lines of trust. Think of, think of a little girl, little toddler, who's standing on a high ledge, and her father says, jump to me and I'll catch you. <laughs> right? To say she believes in him it's not, she's just not believing facts about him. She trusts, she like trusts her weight. Does that make sense? Like she fully trusts. She's, she's putting her life on the line. Fully trusting the Father. That's kind of the level at which when the creed is saying, I believe in God the Father, it's not saying I am of the opinion or, or, or I strongly believe in the conviction that God exists. That's not what it's saying. You get it? Are you with me? It's saying, I believe in it, saying, I am putting my full weight onto this person. So it's that level of belief, okay? Because we can kind of, oftentimes, again, kind of equivocate on what we mean by belief. Now, of course, believing in God in this way, trusting, of course, there are things I have to believe that are true, right? I have to believe that God exists to trust in him, but that's not the thrust of the language. The thrust of that first line on your paper there, I believe in God the Father Almighty, it's a, it's a statement of trust, not a statement of cognitive affirmation. You with me? Okay. Um, now, let me make a quick comment. I had a couple people talk to me this week. We were having some conversations, and um, someone brought up, and they said, well, why is it God the Father? And this is sort of a big thing in today. Like, is it, you know, can't we, ref why is it father and not mother, right? Because God clearly doesn't have a, have a body. God, now, the son does. He became incarnate, and he is forever incarnate. But the father is a spiritual being. He, he, he's not a gendered being in the sense of a male body and a female body and that sort of thing. So why father? And there's probably a lot of reasons we could give, and that would take us off course a bit. But let me give you one thought that I think is 
important and why I don't think father and mother, when referring to the first person of the Godhead, are, so, are sort of inter, uh, interchangeable in that sense. Um, now, it's certainly not because men are more in the image of God, right? The very first page of the Bible rules that out. Genesis 1.27, we read, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created, plural, them. Male and female, he created them. So page one lays down this idea that both male and female, quite in contrast to the rest of the ancient Near East world, have equal dignity and bear and reflect the image of God equally. Okay, so it has nothing to do with uh, being closer to what God is like. But I would suggest it's at least in part due to with how gender roles uh, relate to procreation. What I mean by that is this. Only males beget and only females conceive. And hopefully that's not a surprise to anyone here. And I realize in our world today that's now sometimes a a wild statement to make and a bold statement, but it is only males beget and only females conceive. Now, why, why is that important? Well, if you look at the Eastern worlds, it, you've, you've maybe heard of like words like pantheism, all pantheism, all is God, or panentheism, all is in God. It's this notion that we are really part of God. I can't exist without God. God can't exist without me. I am sort of a little spark of the divine. This is a very common idea within the Eastern worldview. And it, it's oftentimes based off this idea that creation is sort of birthed out of God um, as opposed to creation being begat. And there's a very unique distinction. In fact, you think about it, even our secular culture today believes that a baby growing inside a mother is the mother. There's no difference. It's her body, right? Secular culture goes that direction. So this is standing against this concept of you are not God. <laughs> now you, uniquely from all else in creation, are like God. You're made in his image. It's this great glory. But don't confuse creator and creation. Does that make sense? Are you with me on that? So that's at least one reason why I think I would say we, we don't want to kind of go with this idea, well, that, they were just a patriarchal society, and that's why they called themselves, or called the, you know, God Father. No, God reveals himself as Father, and I think there are a number of good reasons for that. Ben Witherington, he's a New Testament professor, he said this, to the extent that the term Father is used to describe God as a begetter rather than a conceiver of creation or creatures, there is a gender-specific component to the term, meaning there's a reason why we hold on to this concept that he's, he's our father, okay? So again, we could go a lot more, I'll say a ton more about that, but I just wanted to throw that out there because oftentimes that, that's, and it's a valid question, but I think it comes up in people's mind. Now, let me, as we think about, let me give you a, a couple words here. As we think about the word father, this is our first affirmation, I believe in God the Father Almighty, when, when we think about the word father, we can equivocate on the term meaning. We can mean, and the Bible uses this word to refer to kind of different aspects, and so we'll talk about those two. The first one would just be creator. Um, 
God is father in the sense of he's one who begets or creates, not literally begetting, right? Like, but this idea of creating something doesn't necessarily say anything about how God is going to treat or how he feels toward his creation, right? An artist is a creator of a painting or of a cake or of whatever it might be. Tells you nothing about how he's going to treat it. Is he going to engage? Is she going to engage with her work of art? How does she feel about her work of art? We don't know. So father in the sense of just creator is oftentimes used in scripture. Here's an example. The prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, later on in Israel's history, he's... he's um, um, speaking to the Hebrew people who are in somewhat rebellion, and he says, do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Why then do you profane the covenant of our ancestors by your unfaithfulness to one another? So he's using, he's the father of all of us, meaning he's our source, right? He's the head, he's the source, he's the creator. He's speaking of it in this, in this sense. Um, now, there's, a, there's another word, and you've, how many of you have heard this word before? Probably many of you, Abba, okay? We'll say a little bit more about it in, in a couple minutes. Um, one thing that's really interesting, and I was actually really floored this week as I was studying and reading, I was not aware to the degree that this was, this was the case, but in the New Testament, well, I won't even talk about holding, just the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, God is referred to as Father some 170 times. It's like all over the place. But one thing that was really surprising to me, and I, I mean, I knew it was kind of the case, but I didn't realize it was this much, is that referring to God as Father in the Old Testament is almost nowhere. It's probably surprising. It, it, was, it was surprising to me. I was like, that can't be the case. <laughs> now I'm looking around, and it is. People referring to God, means saying God, or speaking to him, addressing his father, it's just not there. Um, images of Yahweh as, as judge, as warrior, as king, uh, are far more prevalent in the Old Testament than when we, uh, what we see the word father used. Now, the, the concept is used a couple times, and I'll give you two kind of categories in which the concept of father is used in the Old Testament. The first one is after King David, it starts to be referred to, to the kings, just whoever the king is, because see, God makes a covenant with David, and he says in the, in the book of 2 Samuel 7.14, he says these words, he says, I will be his, this is your son, he's talking about Solomon, I will be his father and he will be my son, but here's the context of it. What does that mean? I'm not taking him to a baseball game. What it means is when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But he says, but I will care for him. I will care for him, but when he rebels, there is discipline involved. So this idea of fatherhood in the Old Testament, it's not applied to everyone. It's not applied to all people. People are not told to speak to God as your father. The king alone, the anointed one, is spoken of as you're my son. But even here, the word father isn't, isn't directly used in that way. He just says he will be my, he will be my son. So it's this idea of care and correction. So God is, to ha is said to have the special father-son relationship with the king. Um, Psalm 2-7, a, a, a famous passage. Um, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Um, this, this is coronation language. When a king would take the throne, 
the next king after Solomon, the next king after him, this would be coronation language of saying, remember, this is your adoption by God in a unique role to function as the anointed one of Israel, the king. And so that was language that was used there. Um, Number two, the second way that father is used, the first one is about just about the king, one individual. The second way it's used is about God generally saying, I'm going to sustain and care for this nation of Israel. I'm going to care for, for them, God's compassion and care, uh, his creating and sustaining role. So it's this sort of, I'm going to care for you guys because you're my work of art. And so I'm going to make sure that, that you are taken care of. So it, it's a way for Israel to speak of Yahweh's profound commitment to them to make sure that they receive special care, positive attention. So it's, it's, it's still clear that Father, while it's tender and gracious, it's not romanticized ever in any way, if you know what I mean by that. Um, God's capable of fierceness, even sometimes of regret in that way. So the Father metaphor, it's employed to um, talk about this... Uh, Tension between fierceness and compassion, okay? Um, And now it's interesting. It seems as though God did want a special father-like relationship with the people, not not, not individuals, he doesn't, but with the nation. He did want that kind of relationship. The prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 3.19, this is after Israel has Um, rejected God, they are being taken into exile because they have forsaken his covenant. And Jeremiah 3.19, Jeremiah quotes Yahweh, God, and he says, I myself said, how gladly would I treat you like my children and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. I hoped, I hope you were going to call me father. I hope, I hoped, I'd long for you to call me father, and I could treat you like a child. But sadly, as we see, another prophet, Malachi one six, affirms that Israel does not honor and fear the divine father. Malachi one six, a son honors his father. God says, a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. And so they're sent into exile because they refuse. No, you, we will not treat you as a father. We will not enter into a father-child relationship with you. And so later in Israel's history, Israel has, has been taken to the far east into Babylon. And they've been there and they're kind of wasting away there in exile and there's questions, is God done with us? Did we just totally blow it in that way? And yet Jeremiah holds on to this word right here. And he says, no, there's hope. <laughs> and he says this, Jeremiah 31, 9. They will come with weeping. This is the Israelites who were in exile. They will, they will pray as I, Yahweh, bring them back, back from the Far East, back to their land. I will lead them beside streams of water, on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. So to kind of sum it up in the Old Testament, this father concept 
It's rare. It seems to kind of build as you get later on in Israel's history. It seems to be offered to a nation. It's spoken of as one man, the leader, the king alone. Um, individual people did not call God, you are my father. That's why it's so striking in the New Testament. And again, if, you, if, you've, if you've only read the Old Testament, all of a sudden you get the New Testament, like we said, some 170 times in the first four books. He's, oh, he's God the Father. Why is, what is that all about? One, one person has suggested, which is possible, the Old Testament is sort of from God the Father's perspective about history in the world. And the New Testament seems to be from the perspective of the, the Son of Jesus, and so it would make sense that he's calling him Father. And I think there's some truth to that. But all, all, of, the, all of the while, um, or suddenly, I should say, this Father language or concept, though it's in the Old Testament, all of a sudden Jesus shows up, and we notice something remarkable. Right from the very start, Jesus has a self-conception, a self-awareness. Do you remember what he said when he was, do you remember what happened when he was 12 year old? He was a little boy. He's 12 years old. His family goes, because they live kind of in the Galilee area, and they go down to Jerusalem and ascend the great city, and they're there for a huge festival, and they would be there with all of their family and in-laws, and then they all leave in this giant caravan, and they don't, they get, is it like two days? that they realize they're like, Where's, where is he? <laughs> Where's Jesus? And so they go back and they're frantically searching and remember where they find him. He, he's, in the, he's in the temple and when they kind of confront him and say, wow, how could you do this to us? Like, how could you stay behind? You clearly did this on your own. <laughs> um, you're not a three-year-old that I have to carry you. Do you remember his response? Yeah, didn't you know? I had to be in my, my father's place of dwelling, his house. So right from the very start, he has this conception of himself as, oh yeah, God is my father in this very unique way. So it's interesting, this is also something that I found out in uh, looking at the Gospels this last week. Every single time, without exception, when Jesus addresses God directly, he always says father. Not one time does he say anything else. Every single time in the Gospels, when he addresses God directly, he uses the word Father. Well, he also went further than that. The way Jesus referred to God was maybe best summed up, and that's where we get to this one right here. Abba. Abba. Which is really, really weird. Also in the reading I was doing this week. So, well, let me just say a word about this. Abba, uh, it's an Aramaic word, so... Old Testament's written in Hebrew. New Testament's written in Greek. Um, by the time of the New Testament, most of the Hebrews weren't speaking Hebrew unless it was like, if you grew up in Catholic church and you had like Latin in the church, <laughs> that's sort of how Hebrew was. It was very formally done for like religious purposes, but what you spoke around the house was a sister language of Aramaic that came as a result of their exile. Remember when they went to the Far East? <laughs> and they, they learned Aramaic. And so when they came back, what they're speaking around the house when your mom yells at you and tells you to clean up your room, it's in Aramaic. And so this is, this is the language. And, and what's so fascinating is when Jesus prays to God, he uses a word that no, we have, we have not a single record of another Jewish or Hebrew person prior to Jesus ever in the history of the world addressing the eternal God of the universe 
as Abba. Well, the reason that's unique is because Abba is, it's a very, um, it's kind of an intimate, familiar, it's, uh, when my kids were little, you know, they call me Dada, or, you know, Daddy, they called their grandpa Papa, because they couldn't really say the name Grandpa yet, right? It would be a, it's not exactly like Daddy, because like an adult child could say it to his father, but it's a very close word, you know what I mean by that? It's Dad, it's maybe, maybe something like that dad, daddy, something along those lines, but it's this very intimate, close, familiar word, and Jesus um, uses this, but it, it, it always conveys a sense of warmth, intimacy, um, filial respect. The uh, Gospel of Mark chapter 14, Mark records Jesus before he's going to the cross. Remember, he's in the, he's in the, the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's in great turmoil, and, 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 and no one's around, no one's listening, and in, in this deep intimacy, he, he prays to God, and he goes a little further, he falls on the ground, he's laying there, and he says, uh, Abba, Father, Abba, he said, everything's possible for you, take this cup from me, but not what I want, not my will, but your will, that deep, deeply intimate, scary moment, and he uses Abba when he's talking to him. See, the Jewish circles never, ever, ever referred to the Almighty as Abba. It was Jesus who first applied this term and who gave authority to his disciples to do the same. So while it's unparalleled, it wasn't a new conception of God that Jesus just made up calling him Father. Remember Jeremiah 31, he said, I wanted I wanted it. I wanted the father thing, but you guys wouldn't do it. So the idea is that had Israel stuck in a healthy relationship with God, a relationship which, if it would have been healthy, would have led to them calling God as father and actually living with him as father. See, in Jesus' eyes, and this is what's so critical, in Jesus' eyes, being a child of Abba, it's not a factor of, it's not a factor of creation. You don't get to call God dad because he made you, because you're his piece of art. But it is a gift of salvation. That's how you and I can use this intimate word dad when I talk to the God of the universe. It, but it only comes from, from me responding positively to Jesus's ministry and message in the form of me stepping into apprenticeship with Jesus. Then, then I have, remember the Lord's Prayer? Matthew 9 and in, and in Luke, uh, Luke records it. His apprentices say, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? And how does he start? Lord's Prayer. Our, he says, when you pray, do this. Our Father. See, there's a, there's a distinction made between the prayer life of Jesus and that of the disciples during his ministry. It was really, really different. But only Jesus is actually, or I should say, we only see Jesus addressing God as Abba during his ministry. But after the first Easter, 40 days after, after, after the Spirit was given at Pentecost, these people received the Spirit and they were enabled, actually prompted to do so. Listen to the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, verse 14 and 15. Paul writes this, 
For those who are led by the Spirit of God, they are, look at this word, children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your, and this is a key word throughout Scripture, and it's revolutionary, I would suggest, it brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, by the Spirit, we cry, what? Abba, Dad. I, I can now speak to the Creator, the Father, not just his Creator, but now he's my Abba. Because, why? Because of the Spirit. Another place, Paul writes to the church in Galatia, Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the set time had come, had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, under the Torah, under the law, to redeem those under the Torah, that we might receive adoption to sonship. There it is again. Because you are his sons. That's your identity. If there's a place, something you need to circle in scripture, that's it. You are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child of God. And since you are his child, God made you also an heir. Um, a very good friend of mine named George, he's, he's a timber liner. Um, I, I won't share all the names and that sort of thing, but he tells this story publicly. Um, so I'll tell it. He, he and his wife, um, a number of years ago, they have adult children, and a number of years ago, they had um, several of their own biological, and then they adopted this little girl. And um, she's Native American. They thought she was Hispanic. They, they, they knew n almost nothing about her. When they adopted her at six months old, she was less than her birth weight. Extreme abuse. She suffered from attachment disorder and suffered fr from it throughout her life. She's now in her 30s right now. And very difficult, as some of you who have been in similar family situations, you know some of those dynamics. And George has said to me before, he said, the most difficult thing for her to believe was that we loved her as much as we loved our biological kids. She didn't believe it. She looked different than us. Um, and she just had, that, that was the biggest holdup in life was she couldn't believe you don't really love me as much as you love your biological kids. And he said, we really did. We really did. He, and she's, she's in her late 30s now. She has a family, been through a lot of very difficult. But he said, she finally believes it now. She finally believes it today. And say, so here's what I would suggest. Your biggest challenge in life is believing that the Father loves you as much as he loves Jesus. Because do you believe it? I don't know if I believe it. I don't know if I believe it mental map level. I kind of like to say, I, I think I believe it. I don't know if I really believe it. But if you thought about it, that, that will change your life. If you come to embrace your identity, that the Father, he loves you as much as he loves Jesus. Let me even say it a different way. He actually likes you. That's almost more extreme. Some of you go, well, I know he loves me. He doesn't like me, though. <laughs> no, he actually likes you. Wow. That is absolutely wild. Brennan Manning, many of you know him. He wrote books like Ragamuffin Gospel and uh, Abba's Child. 
writes this, the God in whose presence Moses had to remove his shoes because he was standing on holy ground, the God from whom, whose fingertips the universe fell, the God beside whose beauty the Grand Canyon is only a shadow, the God beside whose power a nuclear bomb is nothing, Jesus says you may dare to address the infinite, transcendent, almighty God with the same intimacy, familiarity, and unshaken trust as a 16-month-old baby sitting on its father's lap calling it da, da, daddy. Man. <laughs> See, there's nothing more life-transforming, I promise you. There is nothing more life-transforming than, than the the idea that at the core of your identity, you are not a man or a woman or a father or a blue-collar worker or a white-collar worker or an engineer or a seamstress or a doctor or retired or whatever, but that at the core of your identity, that you would come to believe you are Abba's child. It'll change your life. It'll change my life if I really, really come to believe that, that I am Abba's child. You see, that identity affects everything about me. It affects how I live. It affects how I relate to you. Because if you're in Jesus, we have the same Abba. Um, Brennan Manning also um, told the story years ago. Brennan Manning has passed away a number of years ago, but he tells the story. He was a popular conference speaker, and he would go around speaking at different events, and he was at one in particular, he said, a conference, and he said, this one went very late. At the end of the service, they, they, he would go into a separate room, and he would allow people to come in one by one, and, and he would just pray for them for soul healing, physical healing, whatever it might be, hurts in their, in their life, and so he had this prayer time, and he said, this night went really, really late. It was like midnight, and so when he got done, he said, I was so exhausted. I walked to my room. He said, I didn't even change my clothes. I just lay down in the bed and was out. And he said at about three in the morning, there was a, there was a little knock on the door. And he, he went to the door and he opened it up and it was this nun, this 78-year-old woman, this nun. And she said, uh, a brother, may I, may I come in? Uh, I want to talk. I want to pray. And so he, he said, of course, come on and sat down. He said, she came in, the 78-year-old nun, and she just wept. He said, like hard, just sobs, just weeping, crying. And he, and he said, do you want to talk about it? And she said, when I was, when I was a little girl, is, was when it all happened. She said, I was, I was five years old, and my, my father came into my room and got in my bed without any clothes on. And he said, the family doctor said we should do this to get to know each other. And she said, when I was nine years old, I lost my virginity. And, and when I was 12 years old, she said, I had experienced everything, the dirtiest things that you could imagine in the dirtiest book you could ever pick up. And she said, I, I hate my father. Um, and she said, and I, I feel so dirty. She was a nun. She said, the only reason that I even go up to the communion table to take it is I don't feel worthy, but it would be obvious, it would be odd if I didn't, and so, and so I, I do. And he said, can I pray with you? And so he spent a few minutes praying for her. And then, and then he asked her a question. He said, would you, it, would you do something for me? He said, for 30 days, when you get up in the morning, would you go find a quiet place and would you stand there and just do this with your hands, just open your palms upward and would you just pray this, this simple prayer, Abba, I belong to you. And just pray it over and over 
again. See, it's a prayer that's exactly seven syllables. Abba, I belong to you. And that prayer matches the rhythm of your breathing. Out, you, you, ex, you, you exhale, and it's Abba. Inhale, I belong to you. And he said, do this. And see, at the outset, you, you, you're going to say it with your lips, but eventually it just becomes you're praying it without even saying it in your life. Abba, I belong to you. Abba, I belong to you. Because see, the Abba, I belong to you, he said, it becomes what the French call a cri de coeur, a cry of the heart from the deepest level of who you are. And every single day, he said, you start your day, you're affirming who you are, where you're going, and what you're meant for. Abba, I belong to you. And see, you can pray this a dozen, you can pray this as you're walking across the street, as you're driving in your car, as you're having a meal, as you're sitting in church. Anywhere you are, you can pray this. Abba, I belong to you. Two weeks later, Brennan Manning said he, he got a letter. He said it was the most amazing letter he had ever read in his life. He said she described this true inner healing of heart that she had experienced, the, the complete forgiveness of her father. And, and she said it was an inner peace that she said I'd never, ever known before in all of my life. And... Uh, she said something really interesting. She said, uh, she wrote this. She said, a year ago, as she got to the end of her letter, she said, a year ago, I would have signed this letter with my real name in the religious life, which is Sister Mary Genevieve. But from now on, she said, I'm just daddy's little girl. That's how she signed it. She said, that's how I sign my name always, daddy's little girl. And that's not sloppy sentimentality, you guys. Do you see that? This is someone who is bold enough, a woman daring to pray with childlike faith, with boundless trust in God as Abba, the kind of faith that Jesus said would mark his disciples. Many of you may have a hard time as you think about, as you think about God, this is a hard word for you, maybe because of your own background, because of your experience with your own father, and so you, you have a notion of the fatherhood of God that's not true. And God wants to reorient it. He wants to change your mental map, as we talked about last week. Because see, true, true fatherhood is found in God, first in his relationship to his son. And then it's shared. We're invited into the divine dance of being as adopted sons and daughters John 1, 9 through 13, we read this. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Speaking of the Son coming into the world, the incarnation. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who, what's our, what's our signal? I believe. Those who believed in his name, he gave them a right, a privilege, a right to become Abba's kids. 
children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. That's, that's what we have to be Abba's child. I want to end by telling this story before we go into a time of communion. Uh, Eugene Peterson, many of you will know his works if you don't know him. He was an American uh, pastor. He just passed away this last year. Author, he wrote some like 35 books. Most maybe no, known for, uh, you know, the message version, version of the Bible. It's a paraphrase. He wrote, he wrote the message version of the Bible. And a wonderful man who was a pastor of just a little church for many, many years, a scholar, a brilliant guy, loved Jesus passionately, loved people, loved his congregation. And um, he was involved with a pastoral ministry for 29 years. And um, at his funeral, his son Leif is his son's name, um, and his son Leif came up to, spoke, to, to, to speak at his funeral, and he said, I'm going to let you in on a little secret uh, that my dad let me in on many years ago. And that is that um, he only had one sermon for all of his books and pastoral ministry and 29 years of, he only had one sermon and he said this. He said, it was a secret that Leif said his dad had let him in on early in life. It was a message that uh, Leif said his dad had whispered in his heart for 50 years words he had snuck into his room to say over him as he slept as a child. And this was his only message. God loves you. God is on your side. He is coming after you. And he's relentless. That's it. God loves you. God is on your side. God is coming after you. And he's relentless. That's what it means to be Abba's child. That's who you are. That'll change your life. And the way that we know that, the evidence, the proof that he would go to any extent is this, that Jesus would come, that he would live in my place and he would die in my place, and then he would offer adoption into this family. Wow. And so as we take communion, if, if you have made that commitment to Jesus, you're Abba's child. And so we get to do this as a celebration, as a way of reminding ourselves of, this, of the, the true story that we live in, the bigger story than my own life. And so I would encourage you during this uh, song, there's a couple different stations around the room. Go to them, take the bread, the picture of his body broken, take the cup, the picture of his shed blood, and just let the Spirit whisper into your heart those words. God loves you. God's on your side. He's coming after you. And he's relentless because you're Abba's child. Okay? All right, let's go ahead and do that.